Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome back to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. This is our second episode on the doctrine of irresistible grace. Last episode, we kind of introed it and talked about um, John uh, 6 rather in depth. Uh, hopefully, um, I mean, obviously, if you were going verse by verse, it'd be more in depth than what we treated it, but pretty in depth for, I thought, for a podcast. Um, so I had just some other verses here that I thought um, in general supported the idea of the doctrine of irresistible grace. So um, one of those was Romans 8, 28 through 39. Um, so by this time, or pro- you know, there were maybe a few new passages, but you know, there's certain passages that are very salvific, soteriological in nature. And mm-hmm. so you're going to see those repeated. Um, so uh, this one is... And we know that God causes all causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us for i'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord all right so i think there's some applicability uh, to those verses to uh perseverance of the saints perhaps in the future. So we may see those again. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have here what um, I never knew it was called the golden chain of redemption. Um, but I guess that's what it's called. That's what I've heard it called for as long as I can remember. Yeah. But um, I mean, it's been referred to just not by that name. So it, uh, at least in my circles, um, but I guess a lot of people do. I know James White calls it the golden chain of redemption. Yeah, but I knew it by that long before I started listening to him. So I I don't know where it originates, but I get the sense that it would go back to the time of the Reformation or even yeah. before that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so clearly there's this cycle, this chain, if you will, that leads to our redemption. And it's golden. Um, <laughs> so we'll call it the golden chain. There we go. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, he clearly says that there are some people who he foreknew 
and those whom he foreknew he predestined, and that predestination was to become conformed to the image of his son. So that's kind of a foreshadowing of the glorified at the end. Those whom he predestined, he called. Well, and to make it even more explicit that this is talking about salvation, it's so that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers, indicating that the others are also born spiritually to be like him. So it's right. There's really no way to get around the fact that Paul is speaking salvifically. Well, and right below that, in the verses below that, right below this, he says something about who will bring a charge against God's elect. Right. So clearly it's talking about the people that are God's. Um, And so those whom he predestined, he called those whom he called, he justified those whom he justified. He's glorified. There's nowhere along that step that seems like there's any room for God to lose some. Mm Mm-hmm. Or for some in that chain to go, you know what? Not for me. I'm opting out. Right. Uh, there's a group of people whom God loves, who he has set his heart and his will on, and he will get them all. It seems pretty straightforward. I don't know what else to say about, about those verses. I, what What is interesting to me in this is... I, I completely agree with you. It looks like, you know, those whom, those whom, those whom, it, it appears to be one group all the way through. But even aside from that, why are we trying to find a way for God to be calling people? So God has ordained someone to come to salvation and we're looking for a way for that to not happen. I, I just... It's baffling to me. It boggles my mind. I don't really understand. Um, I've heard James White kind of say that the Arminians are looking for a way for God to fail in his election unto salvation. And I think that's probably a little bit hyperbolic. And I know they would object to that terminology. But I do struggle to understand why it's such a priority that we because i think the difference is that they want to defend autonomous libertarian free will to protect some something i I don't understand why it needs to be protected that that's the disconnect for me yeah i think that it goes back to the objection that paul raises in romans 9 um where the guy says this this isn't fair how can this be fair that salvation would be of God and, you know, who, who, who can resist the will of God? I mean, that's what Paul says. And uh, I think there's, there's this, and Leighton Flowers says it, or maybe it's not Leighton Flowers, it's the other guys we listened to that we couldn't figure out who it was. But mm-hmm. they're like, you know, Armenianism is kind of the natural it's how you would view it naturally. And we're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's the case in almost everything in life um, that those who make the right choices, those who work hard, obviously we're born with different initial talents and stuff, but, and we have different parents, but generally you, you can be successful if you, if you want to. Um, and you can decide to be part of a group if you want to. And that, so I think that that natural intuition gets put in there and we think, no, we can't, we can't take God. What I think is clear. Um, they're going to try to find a way around it. Now I know 
there are some verses that we disagree about that they'd say the same thing about us. Oh, you're, you're just rejecting the clear meaning of this verse because you adopt this system. Um, so that's, that's something that both sides charge against the other. Um, but be it as it may, I think, obviously I think we have the right version or I wouldn't believe this version. I'd believe something else. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I I always think it's a funny chart. You just think you're right. What else am I going to like? <laughs> who, who says this is my opinion, but I don't think I'm right. I mean, yeah, I think I'm wrong on this, right? Because yeah. yeah. even even if you were willing to say that, it indicates that you think something else is right, right? And, so it's not really your opinion, right? Well, yeah. so it, the charge is frequently like, "Oh, you're arrogant because you think you're right," and I'm like, "No, it, it's human to believe your opinion is right. the." I mean, you you may plead ignorance or something and say, mm-hmm. "I don't know what's right," but Anybody that has an opinion thinks that opinion is right. Or they wouldn't think it. That's not necessarily arrogance. Right, right. All right, so another John passage, John 10. uh, Start in verse 22. you want to read this one? Because I've read the the long ones. Well, I've got a couple from the Old Testament that I want to get to. Okay. uh, Yeah, I'm happy to read this one. John 10, what? 22 through 30. Sure. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Yes. through 30, right? I did through 30, because I kind of pre-read these and thought what would be pertinent, because I didn't want to just read, you know, the one one kind of key verse and proof text so he will go on to say that he has other sheep that are not of this flock well that he said that or he preceded yeah. preceded um but um the main point is that he has sheep some sheep are in this flock some sheep are in a different flock but those sheep all hear his voice um when he calls them and no one is able to pluck them out of his hand no one's able to pluck them um out of the father's hand he and the father are one um, and that no one, I, I would contend, um, applies to, uh, even the people themselves. Well, go back up to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never, per- there's not a conditional in there. Right. Right. I mean, I know there are verses where it says that he who endures to the end shall be saved, but I would argue that when you, harmonize that passage with this passage what we're saying is the only thing that logically makes sense and the one passage where it says he who endures to the end those those are how we can look around and see okay this person is living in accordance with salvation and so we can know those things but that salvation either belongs to you or it doesn't and and there are external markers but i mean it's yeah, just like when Jesus said, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, Matthew 7. Um, 
those are things that we can observe and we can know the the tree by its fruit. But here it's not, but it's not the fruit that makes the tree. Right. Right. It's the tree that makes the fruit. The fruit helps us identify the tree, right. but it's the nature of the tree that produces that fruit. Right. Yeah. Just like that's where I was go, going at. Thank oh, you for, sorry. no, 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 no. Thank you for articulating what I was trying to articulate. That yeah. was a, well, and just like if you go back to verse 26, according to an Arminian perspective, this verse has it backwards, right? Mm-hmm. You do not, you, you are not among my sheep because you don't believe would seem to be the way that they would understand this. But it's, but Jesus explicitly says, you can't do this because you ontologically are not this. Right. Rather than you are not because you do not, you do not because you are not. Exactly right. Right. You, you are of your father, the devil, which I think he says in John 8. Therefore, you're doing the works of your father. Mm-hmm. Right? Be- because of what you are, then we see outcomes that are working out. Right. Yep. Completely agree. Um, so I have some other um, New Testament passages, but if, if you want to hit your... Uh, I've got one more New Testament passage, Romans 9. It's, you know, it's the only passage we have, really. Um. <laughs> you remember um, Abram's meme? When he's like, Calvinists be like, Romans 9, do, 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 Romans 9. Like, that's all that we have. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, two, I mean, we're not really highlighting obscure passages here. And the two that I have are going to be well-known Old Testament passages as well. But Jeremiah 31. And um, I'll just read 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? I would argue against Presbyterians that this shows that the new covenant is very clearly not a mixed covenant like the old covenant was. The old covenant with national Israel had within it a remnant of true believers and had within it people who were perhaps externally in conformance with the covenant. Many times they weren't even that, but it was a mixed group of believers and unbelievers. I believe this tells us very clearly all of the members in the new covenant, God has done something that changes their state of being. He has done something in their hearts by putting their law in there. He has forgiven their iniquity and all of them, from the least to the greatest, know who he is. I don't see anything in this passage that shows any activity on the recipients or the members of the new covenant to get into it. Now, clearly, there is activity that results from their being in it, right? Um, You know, I will be their God. They will be my people. I think that involves Mm -hmm. not simply what you are, but what you do. Um, and, and so 
I think then you see a lot of the passages in the New Testament that talk about how we ought to live now that we are Christians. Right. And I think that's in perfect harmony with living out the salvation that God has wrought in us. But here, um, it, it just it appears to me that God is saying, here's what I did with Israel. I didn't make them all believers. And you see the mixed covenant. Here's the new covenant. I'm going to do it all. Mm-hmm. All of them are going to exist in a state of reconciliation with me because I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you say that's maybe a little bit too strong, then I would say let's go to Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. This is a little bit long as well. But therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And if you go on, all of the active verbs there are God saying, I will do this. I will do that. And he even says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So the the living out of a holy, sanctified life, you know, here God is saying he will do it. Go to Philippians 2 and you see Paul saying that even as we are living out God's will for our lives, we have to recognize that it is God who works in us both to will and to mm-hmm. work for God's good pleasure. So um, it, it seems to me that even in the promises of the new covenant that are made in the Old Testament, we see God telling us, you, you can't do this on your own. I have to do this for you. And according to Ephesians 1, we see that God is doing it to the praise of his glorious grace. So so what would it look like for God to be in the midst of giving someone a new heart, taking out their heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh and causing them to obey? What would it look like for someone to resist that or to not be affected by that if we want to switch our words? So I'm saying I I'm trying to think of what would would a possible objection be what how what would the what would the latent flowers objection be to to this I don't know I'm, um, not, I'm not trying to stump you I'm just trying to think how, how what's the, the what's the Armenian way to deal with like what where along this step does someone go Yeah that's not for me I mean. Clearly, I think maybe this is what they struggle. Clearly, we see people say, yeah, that's not for me. We see people who people have prayed for, or maybe there was one guy I was talking about, or one guy I was listening to who was talking about folks being under conviction and like white knuckling the back of the pew and then resisting, resisting, resisting and walking out. So they're going to use, I guess, that experience to trump God's words in, in one sense. Um, but I mean, I, my response to that would be, well, maybe he was feeling pressures from family and pressures from external sources. But if he never 
converted, then it would show that he was not part of the sheep. He was part of the sheep that couldn't hear his voice. He was part of the sheep that weren't of his flock, that didn't get their new heart. He kept his heart of stone and therefore resisted. Well, I, this is a little bit off the cuff, so if later I retract it, don't hold me to it. But I think it might be possible that God gives partial understanding to someone, but not a full salvific grace so that they do begin to see their sin rightly and then they harden their heart against letting grace or faith work in their heart. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think we harden our hearts and I think God hardens our hearts. I mean, you go back and you read about Pharaoh and it says both. It says right. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. And I mean, classic example, right? Towards the end of that, we, we've just read through that in our um, family Bible reading time. Towards the end of that, you have the people of Egypt coming to him and like, they're not even believers, but they're like, dude, let them go. Don't you get it? Egypt mm-hmm. is ruined. Right. You keep hardening your heart. We don't care about them. Look, I mean, just from a human perspective, our crops are gone. Our livestock are gone. The first one, are, I mean, right. it's just overwhelming. Even if we don't believe that God is doing it on the off chance that it might be, I mean, they're not helping us as much as this has hurt us. Right. And, and still, because God said, I will harden his heart because I am going to get glory over Egypt. We see Pharaoh hardening his heart. We see God doing it as well. So I think that they they both work together. Um, you were talking about the person who God has revealed some to, um, and the, but then he resists. I think when a perfect example of that is when Jesus is talking to the cities that he's doing you know miracles in, and they don't believe. And he says, you know, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you, mm-hmm. you, your understanding was opened up a little bit and yet you didn't believe, you know, woe to you. So clearly there's folks who get more revealed to them and then they, they continue to resist out of their nature because they have a heart of stone. Yeah. I, if I were trying to come at it from an Arminian perspective, I would think that their arguments would say two things. One, uh, I believe that they hold to an interpretation with which I would disagree of some of the passages about God offering salvation to all men. God is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, First John 2, 2. Um, I don't think that means what they think it means, but, you know... Um, uh, God desires all to be saved. Um, I think that's First Timothy two. Well, there's a and there, then there's the Peter passage. Yeah. God is not slow concerning, you know, right? Not wishing that any should perish. And um, I think in all three cases, they actually are misunderstanding the context and therefore misinterpreting the verses. But I think that they would be trying to say this is how we interpret those verses. So we're being logically consistent. Um, and I think the argument that I seem to hear frequently is our God is more loving because our God makes provision for salvation for all and then leaves it up to the individual to choose because compelled love isn't love. Yeah. 
I'm just trying. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, yeah. That's and, what I hear. And I've heard those things before, and it just frustrates me because those are the same people that will say that we're ripping one or two texts out, and then we really just come at it with logical arguments. Um, but we're, God forbid we would be right. Like, yeah. And I, definitely we, we want to be logical and we want to take these, uh, these scriptures and reason from them. But, you know, you just read two passages about God talking about his new covenant and how it's going to be different than the old covenant and how these things are going to happen. And there seem to be, you know, just no place for someone to resist. No, and not, and again, that assumes that once God is dealing with them, that they're going to want to resist. We're not talking about the, the, the guy that, um, like you said at the beginning, I think of the last one, you know, there's no one that gets dragged in kicking and screaming. Eventually it may appear that way. Like we know that there's like these, you know, there's, um, JR, you know, we prayed for, for years and years and years and years and years. And, you know, from all accounts, it appears, you know, that he's, he's a, a believer. He's turned his life around and handed it over to God. Um, so in one sense, someone may say, well, he went into the kingdom kicking and screaming, but I guarantee towards the end, uh, if he's a believer, uh, he, uh, willingly and lovingly entered into that relationship with, with Christ and, mm-hmm. and was happy for it. Um, so I, I just don't see anywhere in these, Places where someone who God has laid the effectual call on is resisting because there's this category that God is drawing, calling, for new, predestined, justifying, glorifying. All right. So uh, the last one that I had as a positive argument for is just a snippet of the longer Romans 9 passage that we've talked about. I'm just going to pick up in verse 11. It says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So out of here, Jacob is the one that was loved. And I have in my notes that the shocking thing is that not that he hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob given, you know, how bad Jacob was, but because so that he could show his grace, his choice, he is pursuing Jacob and he's not going to lose Jacob. Right. Jacob is, is going to, you know, be his and, and be won over. So is it a, is it a huge, you know, it's just all of these verses seem to be in accord talking about this salvation being from God to us, not, not the other way around. To deal with objections in the next episode? Sure. All right. So this is actually one of our shorter episodes. I mean, we're going to be we under... stretch it if you want, but... <laughs> <laughs> what can we talk about? All right. Uh, well, this is uh, Mike and Mike Theology Plus. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology.